0: Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is
1: why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit.
0: Because every movie makes us feel something. Hey everyone and welcome to episode 143 of the Feelin' Film Podcast. I'm Patch and with me ready to explore the deepest parts of podcast conversation is my best friend and co-host Aaron.
1: I got to tell you, Patrick, this whole movie gives me a sphincter factor of about (laughs) 9.5.
0: I'd have to agree. I would have to agree. And that's probably one of the best lines in the entire movie. (laughs) And that's probably not my favorite. So that says a lot about the movie going (laughs) into it.
1: Yes, that does.
0: Well, this week kicks off our third annual director month. And this time around, we are talking through four films by acclaimed director James Cameron. And if you haven't guessed by now, we're kicking off week one with 1989's sci-fi action film, The Abyss, in stunning DVD quality.
1: Oh, man. Don't even get me started. <laughs> I don't even why you had to throw that in there so soon. Can I – I'm going to interject. You know, when I, I brought that up on Facebook, I was complaining about it as well because it drives me crazy and on my tv I can't even stretch the the letterbox version of this film on my dvd to fit my widescreen tv it just will not work so I had to watch it like as a little rectangle in the middle of my large hd tv drove me crazy just so <laughs> crazy but um I, I did learn that there was an hd version of this film on Netflix UK at one point last year, it was no longer streaming, but from what um, Jacob, one of our contributors had done some research, he found that like, there is an HD version out there that apparently is very stunning. And so maybe, maybe that's going to be the one that goes on the Blu-ray disc and it's just a matter of getting those special features finished off or something. But I'm crossing my fingers because I really, really want this film in high quality.
0: Well, I want high quality and I want those special features. There's so much about The Abyss, not only the movie, but what went on behind the scenes that's just as intriguing and i know we're probably going to be talking maybe a little bit about that uh in our conversation tonight so i mean why don't we just go ahead and get right into it whoa there my friend no 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 no
1: no no. keep your pantyhose on (laughs) (laughs) okay but first (laughs) first uh you know before we dive into yet another undersea adventure in a row um Let's welcome and thank some longtime listeners who have become patrons this week. Uh, I'm very excited about this. It doesn't happen all the time. And so we had like this influx. And I think it's because we had five really great films up in January for our donor pick episode. I do believe that has something to do with it.
0: Um, I believe so too.
1: And so Renee, Matt, and Ruth all came on board as patrons earning voting power um, helping us support the show, um, keeping it going, you know, upgrade our equipment, things like that, that we've got uh, plans to be doing, pay for the website, all that amazing cost that we have to spend. Um, you guys are helping us keep that in check and we really appreciate that. Um, I've already seen how these guys voted. So I, I knew right away, like, oh, you're trying to get that movie in. I see what you're doing. And it's smart because this month the voting is incredibly tight. And I'm talking... Like super duper tight, more so than most months. So if anybody else is out there listening now, you have until January 10th uh, to become a patron and actually vote in this month's poll. And I don't even – what were the movies, Patrick? It was – um, so we got Starship Troopers, which has yes. been in like two or three polls now, and it keeps losing. And that was in, what – Matt has yeah. wanted that since he became a listener of the show like two years ago. He's been petitioning for that. He loves that movie, and so he keeps <laughs> being crushed every time it loses. So I really – for his sake, I almost am sad if it loses again. Um, we had about time
0: uh, Mm -hmm.
1: in there which is a great one of my favorite rom-coms there's uh, inside out inside out equilibrium Uh, equilibrium
0: and i believe up and
1: up yeah so i mean this is like a stacked lineup which is good for patrick and i because we will enjoy talking about whatever wins (laughs) we we're the real winners here
0: yeah we really are yeah but yeah i have no problem admitting that
1: so we wanted to just make sure we said thank you to Renee, Matt, and Ruth. Uh, if you do want to check out Patreon and, and join that, it's patreon.com slash film. And I've now said my piece. We can get into the water.
0: All right. Well, I will start us off with one more takeaway, if you don't mind. And uh, as I was going through this viewing, I realized that I had actually not seen this movie in at least 10 years. This was a a movie that I, I recall watching when I wasn't married and so it had a different effect on me this time. So I'm, I'm, I'm watching this movie and as I finished it up, I said, there's one word that could completely just sum up my viewing experience and that's isolation. And there's a particular line that Lindsay says to Bud near the end of the film as he's plummeting down the trench and she says, you're not alone. She says a lot more, but she says, you're not alone. And I, for one, as an audience needed to hear that watching this, the whole thing makes me feel like I'm cut off from the world, uh, from the, the color palette to the, the ambient noises. Um, I, I recently acquired a pair of wireless headphones so that I could watch movies without subtitles on after my family goes to sleep. We have a fairly small house and our living room backs right up to our master bedroom. And so my wife, she'll go to sleep. And I'll start watching a movie and I'll hear, Patch, can you turn that down? And I've already got it at like six. And so I have to turn it down to three and then kick the subtitles on. Which I'm fine with, but I'd rather listen to a movie than read it. And so I got this pair of headphones. I tried it out on Thor. Was pretty impressed. I'm watching it with this one. And Aaron, I got to tell you, there is this full immersion that takes place when you stick on a set of headphones and you really can't hear your dog Trying to get your attention because she won't settle down. Your child possibly crying. He didn't, by the way. This was all just speculative stuff. But how do you know? Because I, I just like <laughs> just like now I keep one ear slightly out. <laughs> but during partic- particular parts of, of movies that I know have really great like sound type things, I put both headphones on, hoping that nothing happens in the in the interim. And so I'm I'm, I'm watching this movie and experiencing it in a theatrical type setting, I've turned off all the lights and it was so cool to, and I say this really weird to feel that cut off from everything and just be focused on this world of this underwater depth and the cold blackness and the sound of the bubbles and the water and splashing here and there. I mean, even down to when coffee is, just pulling that chain, the way he pulls it, it's just right in your ear. And just, I love the ambient noise. So if, I don't know if this movie got a sound editing or a sound mixing Oscar nomination or award, but I think it should have. I don't know what it was up against. But I just, I remember feeling this way, watching it for the first time and subsequent viewings, but having those headphones on, I really felt that isolation. I felt like I was with this, ragtag crew of oil drillers trying to make something work in this place where they were quite literally cut off from the ship that they were tethered to. And I was in there with them.
1: Well, I totally understand that. And I am even more than I already was jealous of your headphones. Super duper envious. I'm not in a, in a bad way, but in a way that says like they went on my wish list immediately after you told me this story offline and I can't wait to get them. Um, I, I have a very similar situation where I watch movies a lot of times at night, I'm not in the same room or, you know, next to a spouse, but I have a roommate and he's in bed and I'm up at, late at night watching movies and I like my sound big and loud. I like to fully hear my movies. So uh, I'm I'm excited to try those out and see what um, they can do for me. Maybe if you bring them up here with you, I can test them.
0: Yeah. Um, they are actually – so this is something – this is inside baseball. Listeners, you can skip ahead if you want to. But this particular set of headphones I bought because my television doesn't have Bluetooth. It was a, It's an older, like 720, that we got just after we moved into the house. And so it's about nine years old. So this particular model has a has a receiver that functions as the Bluetooth thing. It's a Bluetooth it's a set of Bluetooth headphones. But I will definitely bring it, and you can check it out on um, you know, as long as you have a a digital out or an AV out or something like that. We can we can give it a go, and uh, we can see if it meets to your satisfaction. And then you, if it does, then you can be even more insanely jealous after I leave.
1: Yeah, and then I can rewatch the abyss and find out what your experience was like. There you go. Uh, Real quick, just so you know, the awards for The Abyss, it received four Academy Award nominations, uh, Best Cinematography, Best Production Design, um, Best Special Effects, of course, which it won, and Best Sound Mixing, So great. Sound or okay. Sound Editing. I don't know which one it is, it just says Best Sound on IMDb, but it was nominated uh, for that award, so great. Yeah. great. Well, this is a really weird occurrence, Patrick, because I don't know that this has ever happened, where we've had the same one-word takeaway. We've had the same connecting point before, but not the same one-word takeaway. This hmm. this one, for me, was pretty strongly the feeling I came away with as well, and that's isolation. Yeah. Like you mentioned, right from the start, the film hits us with that slightly reworded Friedrich Nietzsche quote. Uh, in the film, it says, When you look into the abyss, the abyss looks back at you. The actual quote is, and if you gaze long into an abyss, the abyss also gazes into you, which I like a little better, but I understand why they might have changed that up just slightly. And that is so true. And I think it is definitely indicative of the kind of isolation that one can feel when wrestling with a new divine revelation or experiencing some kind of spiritual awakening, which could very well be. The type of feelings that you experience if you're meeting a supernatural being for the first time. But in addition to that and then, you know, what you mentioned about the sound design in particular, the isolation hits me, I think, because of my history as a sailor. I've been out to sea for months before, and though I've never been under it like this, I know how cut off this type of lifestyle can make you feel, even when you're surrounded with close friends or coworkers you really take that mental aspect of being out by yourself and you, you pair that with the physical sensation, that the abyss generates of being stuck underwater with zero help available and even further underwater with a madman. And you know, it would be enough to understand why anyone might go a little crazy. And then on top of all that, you have the diving scenes in this movie Despite a personal love of the ocean, I personally have never, ever learned to scuba. And this movie is a great example of why. Um, it's because that isolated nature of that scares me to death, frankly. And certainly, it does make for a really intense, dramatic sci-fi thriller, though, um, as we see here. So, yeah, yeah man, it, it was all about the isolation feeling for me as well. And, and and it's interesting because I felt that even watching it sitting next to my roommate, you know? Yeah.
0: Which is cool. And I think Cameron has this really fascinating way of, of creating that isolation, if not physically, then mentally or emotionally in, in some of his, his other movies. I mean, I might be reading too much in this and if I am, well, don't forgive me because you know, whatever I like talking about it. But I think that, even like with Terminator 2, well, there's a sense of, there's a sense of desperation. There's a sense of – there's only – there's not a lot of options to get out of the situation. You have to improvise. You have to think and you have to rely on other people. Terminator 2 has the same kind of idea. But I think what's interesting about The Abyss is all that kind of stuff. The things that you describe that sound so beautiful and magical about the ocean, James Cameron has basically turned it on its head and saying – and said, what would happen if you lost the respect of the ocean? If you, if you stopped respecting the water that takes up, you know, well over uh, 70% of our planet. And I, I, I watched the abyss and I, I feel that sense of awe because of some of these shots, some of this, this cinematography, but I also feel that sense of, of respect. Like, look, not just the NTIs, but the whole depth of the ocean. Like even the discovery of the submarine when they when they go down to do their recon, it that shot that Lindsay, you know, she's she's looking for it and looking for it, and then all of a sudden it comes kind of into view, like very slowly, almost like a big whale, like a big like uh fish that's just kind of coming out of nowhere. To me, makes me feel like there's scale to it like oh look how small we are compared to the rest of this place that we're you know living in and working in and it like space makes us feel very small Um, and in a lot of ways i think that that's by design
1: oh i mean yeah it's maybe by design both by james cameron in this movie and designed by you know someone else as well who made the ocean but uh, i love that there's no sea creatures as, as well in this one. Like, you know, when you think of, okay, we're going to watch a two and a half hour long movie. And for the record, listeners, um, we are going to spoil this movie. So if you haven't seen it, please make sure you don't go any further. Um, and then you come back after you have, seek it out. It's worth watching for sure. But we did watch the director's cut. So that's why we're talking about a little bit of a longer length. Um, It's the only way to watch it. In my opinion, Patrick, would you agree? Definitely. Okay. So would. We, we would say watch the special edition slash director's cut. It's very long, but it's worth it. That being said, it's like two and a half plus hours of being underwater. And it's never about sea creatures. There's no sharks that cause any problems. There's no, you know, killer octopi or squids or whales or anything like that. Uh And that's surprising. You know, I think the majority of films like this, you would expect to see something like that come into play at some point. Even it just feels like a trope that should be there. And I really respected that it wasn't in this movie. That's not what this story needed. It just wasn't realistic part of it and it didn't need to be there. Hey, before we get any deeper though, um, yes, more puns. This is, this is what's happening. We did it last week. We're doing it again, but I wanted to ask you a question that actually ties into our one word takeaways. Cameron is so good at capturing this tension and claustrophobic feeling of being underwater. And it really hit me, especially when exploring the inner confines of the sunken sub, there's nowhere to go. (laughs) And you really feel it with the characters. And a couple times he even switches to a first person POV from within their mask that made it just terrifying. I simultaneously wish I would have seen this on the big screen in IMAX and also am thankful that I didn't have to because I wonder how scary that would. It would have been like watching Gravity or something. But to that point, I want to ask you, if you had to be stuck in one vast, frozen, isolated place all alone, would you prefer space or underwater? And why would you choose the one you choose?
0: Ooh, that's tough because both you run the risk of not being able to breathe at some point. <laughs> um but I think my answer would kind of go back to what you mentioned about what this movie doesn't have and that sea creatures. If I'm in space, the vastness of space, I'm quite literally dealing with isolation. I'm by myself. But from what I know about space, which is about, you know, a half an inch worth of knowledge, um I would feel more I wouldn't feel like I was going to be flanked by some weird thing. Like, I don't feel like I'm going to be eaten alive. In other words, I would rather be underwater or I'm excuse me, I'd rather be in space because I feel like it's a lower risk at being attacked by something that's scary and unknown, even though I know space is probably full of that stuff. I don't like the idea of being stuck underwater, sitting in a vessel or just sitting in a small confined space knowing that there could be something out there that could get me. And so now I've got two ways that I could perish either by (laughs) losing oxygen or by getting attacked by, by a shark, you know, fish are friends, not food. No, not in this thing. They are, you know, there's just more, there's more danger to me in uh, being underwater. Plus I don't want to drown. Drowning sucks. I've heard. So,
1: yeah, well, you know, I'm actually in the same boat to use a backwards pun because I would choose space as well and I think what you just outlined there is a large part of why I would choose space part of is because there's no creatures and there's there's not that added element I think other reasons that would you know make me slightly lean towards space are darkness aspect so when you're yes. down that deep in the ocean if you don't have you know some flares like Aquaman did to like have on down there at the bottom of that trench you see nothing. Like you, you. There's no light that's coming through at all the way, piercing that that to that depth. In space, there at least is the potential of rotating to the point where there's a sun or there's a planet that is you know bright. There, there's some sort of light that you might be able to see. And I think I think a semblance of a light aspect would be appealing to me. And then third for me, frankly, is that. I think be dying in space just sounds more majestic to me. Like if I'm going to die, I know you're laughing, but like, I want my eyes. I want the last things that I see as I'm floating off into nothingness, knowing I'm going to perish from not being able to breathe. Like I want to be seeing things that almost no one has been able to see or experience. I want that. And even if I'm at the bottom of the ocean and very few people have been there, like – I'm not going to be able to see and experience things in that same way that no one else has. And I think, yeah, I just – maybe I get closer to God. I don't know. But I, I, I think space for me would win out as well for all of those reasons.
0: And odds are, I mean, if you are in motion, you're going to keep going. So you're not going to be anybody's problem if you're floating away from Earth onto whatever – the next planet is that has light around it. Whereas if you're underwater, once you get filled up with water, man, you're just going to hang out there and have crabs coming out of your mouth. I mean, yeah. this is just kind of how it's going to be.
1: And in space, maybe you get lucky and bump into a satellite or a space station. You know, yep. There's stuff up there, right? Yeah. I don't yeah. know.
0: There's junk um, on the moon. We could at least, you know, land there and then just <laughs> hang out with the, uh, the, <laughs> the lunar modules that have been stuck there.
1: But I love it, man. I I loved exploring the underwater. I think this has got to be one of my absolute favorite films that does it. I love space and I love the ocean. And so I just realized watching this how similar the exploration of these two things are and probably why I love both of them so much. This almost in a lot of ways felt like almost kind of like an underwater interstellar um, in yeah. some ways. Um, and, I, and I just I really enjoyed this last rewatch.
0: Well, I would have agreed with that. I think for me, it reminded me quite a bit of an underwater 2001, 2010 with some of the story beats and some of the ways in which we get from point A to point B through some of the narrative. But let's talk a little bit about the overall plot. I mean, you mentioned this is almost three hours. I think it's like two hours and 50 minutes or something like that. And it has in some of the research that I've done with the movie, it didn't do really well at the box office. And granted, this was a theatrical cut. But it gained this cult following. Um, But even even that it's still kind of seen by a, lo- a number of people as kind of taking on too much because there's definitely a number of things going on here. So for your money, do you feel like it did that or do you feel like it hit all the right story beats for you? Um,
1: I I like. I love 95% of this film and, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna go ahead and get my one complaint out of the way and just so I don't have to talk about it anymore. Cause there is one smallish section of this movie that knocks it out of five star territory for me. And it, for me, my five star films, you know, what I rate on, obviously largely on emotional connectivity. That's what we talk about the most. That's what we love the most. Um, but you know, for me, it's, it's a movie that, I personally don't have a dip in my enjoyment of. That's a five-star movie to me. This movie, I had a dip. In, and it's unfortunate, but it's happened the last two times I've watched it now. And I can't pretend it doesn't happen. And I love the science aspect of this film. I like that it feels very realistic. Um, everything about how the story gets set up makes sense to me. We're in this kind of coming out of the Cold War situation situation where, you know, the world ties between Russia, it's always Russia, man. I love at one point, they're like, it was probably a Russian bogey. Like everything was a Russian bogey in the late 80s, you know, in the early 80s and 80s um, as a whole. And so, you know, you have Russian, you know, heightened things with the sub going down. And then you have this, essentially these scientists, they're blue collar workers. They actually chose to rewrite the script instead of having them be a science team. But they they play like scientists in a lot of ways, with um, just with different personalities, and I, and I love that. I like how everything works together to make this a completely believable situation. There's a hurricane coming on top of the ocean, so you're stuck down there with uh, all by yourself. The seal team is coming to commandeer your equipment and go down to check out the sub. Like that's real protocol. That's what would happen. So I love everything about it and how it progresses. I noticed actually, Patrick, for an almost three hour movie, how little time is spent on or with the aliens. Like, there's like 30 minutes of this movie that deals with the aliens. That's it. The rest is all set up and character development and plot moving along and all the tension and thriller. Um, and that's, that's pretty, pretty well done. The thing that I kind of lose a little bit of love for it is, in the moments where coffee goes crazy um i think at that point while i understand it from a thematic point of view meaning i believe and get why coffee is losing his mind due to the pressurization i mean he's been losing it from the moment he gets down there like that's a, we've seen his hand shaking we knew it was coming it's telegraphed for us foreshadowed i guess but he becomes this murderous man and goes on this rampage. And, and I, while I, I can kind of get there thematically and speaking, I, I don't enjoy the acting in that section. I feel like the seals and some of the dialogue goes overboard on the cheesiness. It actually reminds me. It's funny because so when we're talking about coffee, he's played by Michael bean. And I, I was thinking about how many different military guys this, this dude plays he's played a lot of military dudes. Like he was a military guy in Aliens, a military guy in uh, The Rock. Um, and then one year after playing the SEAL team leader in The Abyss, he was in Navy SEALs as another Navy SEAL. So like some of the bravado that the Navy SEALs are played with in that late eighties and nineties, it just, it plays as pure cheese right now. And it felt to me almost out of place in this movie because it, this movie tows that line really carefully, the balance between going into kind of like schlocky type of dialogue, and I think it loses it a bit in this section where Coffee's going crazy. And so for me, that's like the one down point of the film. But other than that, yeah, man, I think the entire plot all the way to the end, everything makes sense. Um, it's moving. It is impactful for me emotionally, and it leads me to a place where I really enjoy considering the ending of this film. And I'm anxious to talk about that with you once we get there.
0: Yeah. I look at the overall narrative and being really familiar with the theatrical cut. I liked the additions of the director's cut. And I remember reading that Cameron, it was actually Cameron's idea to cut a lot of this stuff like the, the studio, they, they were not, they were not opposed to this almost three hour runtime, but Cameron, said no I need to I need to cut some things and so it was really more creative that the theatrical cut was was made it wasn't a studio decision which is really interesting because you normally don't hear that you normally hear about the opposite and so I I absolutely agree that the director's cut is a lot better there's a lot more that is fleshed out not only with the aliens but also with this crew and what I liked about the crew, I ended up loving about them because of some little added features of added things. Even now, watching it for probably a third time, watching the theatric or watching the director's cut, I still recognize the pieces that were put in without necessarily having to go back and say, "Oh, was that part of it?" No, that wasn't. But overall, I think that it it satisfied me in terms of the way the narrative played out, everything like you mentioned made sense to me. We have this, we have the sub that crashes. We have this, this whole dialogue of kind of exposition through the briefing that gives us as an audience, a reason to say, Oh, okay. Yeah. That's why it would make sense for these blue collar workers to have to essentially have their rig commandeered and even help out with the dive. Because otherwise you're thinking these are oil workers. In fact, uh, one of Bud's lines says, he actually says, says, my people are oil workers. They're not qualified for this. And I'm like, yeah, they're not. What's the deal? But that conversation helped me believe that, okay, this would make sense. And the the thing that throws me off, I, I didn't mind the coffee breakdown as much. In fact, it's it's probably one of the more entertaining things for me. But I think your issue with it kind of speaks to my issue with the overall datedness of the events going on because we're not in the cold war right now. We're in a technological age. Uh, The cold war was a significant event back in the eighties and the early part of the nineties. And that's no longer the case. You know, Russia is not what it once was. And so anytime you hear it's the Russians, it's the Russians, it is a trope and it's being used that way. And so when I was watching this and I hear a guy like coffee saying, you know, the Russian bogey, blah, 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 blah. I kind of rolled my eyes a little bit. But I also know that that wasn't meant to be a, a humorous line necessarily because Cameron writes about the era that he's in. And this story was created in a way that other stories surrounding the, the Cold War were written. They were meant to be taken not necessarily seriously, but they were meant to be more believable because of the situation at hand, a lot like you have movies that come out today that deal with the internet or they deal with social media. What's going to happen in 10 years when that may change, when the new thing is something else completely? Will movies about Facebook or about uh, social media, will they be out of date? I don't know. It's And I'm not saying that directors need to think about that, but I'm saying that that's kind of the... When you, when you put something in a particular time period, you run the risk of dating it. However, that's the only thing that feels dated about this movie. Most everything else feels very fresh, uh, from a lot of the special effects, not all of them to the overall narrative and how it flows. I don't feel like it was long. I felt like it was, I felt like it was just right for my money to be able to, um, get me everything that I needed to have a complete story.
1: Well, I'm really glad to hear that. I really am. I think, yeah. I, I mean, it it is almost there for me. The the Deus Ex Machina about the gun kind of bugged me this time as well. Just all everything leads up to this intense moment, and then there's no bullet there. Like, come on, you're a seal. There'd be a bullet there. If you wanted there to be a bullet there, there'd be a bullet there. Um, what I I do love the setup though, just so much. And as a military guy, you're right. Like, it, it nailed the era perfectly and i think cameron what he does so masterfully and we're gonna talk about this all throughout his films this month it's not just visuals it's atmosphere it's building this world and he does it here as well you know he lets us feel that heightened sense of fear due to the sub going down and he he, there's little bits of dialogue and and there's tv interviews that you hear in the background and things like that that you need to pick up on you have to be paying you have to be actively involved in his film because you hear things like oh it's 80s 80 miles off the coast of cuba like that matters that tells you as a viewer what to like that tells you how heightened it is that that's explaining to you why the characters are acting the way they're acting you know and then later we learn you know this guided missile cruiser that ran into a soviet destroyer which probably was the ocean's fault um Russia blaming the U.S. for the attack, and that's that's escalating the SEAL team, who now is like, okay, we got to move, right? This down sub is down there, tensions are getting high. Um, they're not going to tell Bud. They're going to steal the rig and go do it. That makes sense because that is what would happen. They're following protocol. I, I've been I've been in the military, like, and one thing I really enjoyed is how they're portrayed in this film because it it gives you a great conflict between bud and coffee and his team and a great scene where their first meeting and buds you know pulling out the whole like listen this is my team i control who goes where and who does what but i understood and i could empathize and with the other side because i've been there and in that world all you know is orders and following them and and there's no room for bud to step in and say I need to tell you what you need to think about how you talk to these people. No, it's action. And so I could understand both sides so well. And I think that's what makes this movie work. Like it's, it's very real. I think I said earlier, it's very realistic to me. And just the way that Cameron weaves that story together and like, just kind of like kind of plops aliens into the middle of it, like here and there,
0: it's, it's pretty brilliant. So I think we might be able to make an assessment at the end of this month about one of Cameron's stylistic choices and that he takes the normal and he drops in some abnormality to it. True lies has that. Um, maybe Titanic does. I don't know, but um, avatar definitely has a little bit of a little bit more of that. And I'm not saying I, I don't want to pigeonhole him and saying this is what he does, but it's definitely a successful thing that he does here. And there's a, the relationship between the SEAL team and the the oil workers is really fascinating. And it really is summed up in a moment where I believe it's just after the the warhead has been captured. Um, I think it's maybe shortly after the, the storm hits and coffee's yelling at everybody to do this and you're under my orders and these are, this is my protocol. And Bud has said earlier, uh, in another conversation, Hey, this is my team. They don't really take, they don't take orders. Well, you know, and, and coffee's like, I don't care. <laughs> and then later on that kind of comes to pay itself off where coffee's trying to get people to do things, to take care of the sonar and do this and do this. Nobody wants to listen to them. And Bud steps in with this calm demeanor, and he says, "One night you do this, um, so and so do this, and he they're talking to you know hippie get on this and start working, and the this contrast of these two different styles, it doesn't negate coffees. I'm not gonna say that it's like that's the right way, but it shows the authoritative nature of a family of characters." that have been together for a long time and how they trust an individual. In fact, it's hinted at the very beginning where hints getting up on the, uh, (laughs) on the bitch box, you know, where he's about to take the phone call. And as he's walking through, he makes some snide comment about somebody picking up cables and, and He says, starting to look like my apartment, ha ha ha. But what I caught, this was the guy after says, you got it boss. I mean, he's not just their boss. I mean, yes, they, he's their foreman. But he's also somebody that's being trusted, because this is his team. He's in charge of that. And I think that was a guy that ended up drowning. He wasn't a, even a major character. But I think that the biggest, one of the big things that I appreciated about this movie was the characters and how Cameron pays special attention to crafting these characters for a movie like this. And I wanted to throw some love at the uh, at the oil at the oil drillers. Ole, I guess I said that right, from, from Arkansas. You know, one syllable, not two. I love this ragtag group of blue-collar guys. I love the fact that we have characters named One Night and Jammer and Catfish and Hippie. I mean, these are these are not scientific names. These are not Doctor Anything. Even Bud, you know, is his nickname. He doesn't go by his, his, his full name, which is, you know, Virgil.
1: Would you go by Virgil, Patrick?
0: Probably not. Probably not. <laughs> Probably not. If I'm going to lead a group of people... Underwater to drill for oil Or whatever they're drilling for I would not go by Go by Virgil But there, There's a, there's a couple of things I want to highlight And one thing was not actually in the theatrical release And it was this um, This moment where one night She's controlling one of the uh, One of the vehicles And she tries to basically pinch catfish With the arm of one of the rigs Like get a move on As they're trying to get back to the moon pool and then there's this great little sing-along a uh, short time later where you have her and Hippie and, and Bud and a couple other people while they're working to, to accomplish this little task. They're just singing along like you would do on a construction site. And that told me so much about this set of relationships. It told me without even actually telling me that these guys have been working together. They've been, a, they've been around for a while. They've worked together. They trust each other they know the rhythms of each other's behavior. And so they know how to not only work together, but interact with each other. And at certain points, the movie shows us how they're able to protect each other. And I think that's pretty fantastic.
1: Yeah. I I love the characters as well. Um, All the way from the seals, like you said, with coffee earlier. Uh, And then I actually forgot to mention this when there's a great moment that really humanized him for me because when I mentioned the moment where he fights with Bud at the beginning and he's arguing over the leadership of the team but after the rig sinks there's this great moment where he just looks up at Bud from the side and he says I was under orders I had no choice and you can read the sincerity in his face and so you know they get character development as well in a positive way, not just in a, hey, he's going to be the trope of the crazy guy who goes nuts and causes extra problems way. Um, and so I enjoyed that. But yeah, dude, you, you couldn't have said it better. Like the ragtag team of blue collar workers at play here and their name, I, I'll never get over Lisa one night standing. I love like telling people that because when they don't catch it, I'm like, guess what? Did you hear what her name was? I mean, she is a country singing African-American lady and she's the best submersible pilot they have. This is in the it was 1989 Patrick. That's yeah. that's unique and progressive for 1989.
0: sure Okay? Yeah.
1: Um and and I love it and she plays that role so good. Like I can't imagine anybody else there. Um and then, you know, Hippie and his rat gives us one of the best scenes in the entire film, I think, where it's Cameron. Like it is this is like if you had to pick a few scenes or move scenes from different person's movies to like say what is what does James Cameron look like to you? Like you'd pick you know some of the T one thousand moments in Terminator, um, you know you'd pick the ship breaking apart in Titanic. Um, you you very well might pick the alien Russian water tentacle moment in the abyss but you also might pick this one i think because there's a hippie's rat right that he's like in love with and first of all it's crazy that this dude is allowed to like carry a rat around underneath but we're talking about great character development that doesn't seem so far off you know you're isolated and it's a pet it's something to take care of something to keep you calm and there's a great moment where they use the rat to test the liquid oxygen Which by the,
0: which by the way is a real thing.
1: It is a real thing. And I was going to say that it's, yeah, it's, it is. And they actually drowned the rat. In fact, they drowned several rats, uh, in this. I was going to read this bit of trivia because I, I found this, I found this fascinating. Most people think that there's no way that this could ever work in the real world, but that's what I was saying about how, like, James Cameron does his homework. You know, he's like Christopher Nolan in that way. Those two guys. Um, it sounds like scientific mumbo jumbo, but it really is something you can breathe. And so what they did is they allowed the rats to breathe it after testing it on Ed Harris first. And I, I just can't even fathom like being an actor on a set and Cameron being like, hey, bud, <laughs> need you to need you to put your head in this uh, bowl of water. and uh and and breathe it it's cool don't worry like i mean the trust factor involved in that whether you quote unquote know it's real or not it's an oxygenated fluorocarbon liquid that mammals can breathe and just like they say in the movie when someone drowns you don't die because you have water in your lungs you die from a lack of oxygen so as long it's more of an inconvenience honestly than anything else so as long as you can get the oxygen out of the liquid that you're good Um, The American Humane Society actually gave the Abyss an unacceptable rating because they, quote, do not feel it was necessary to subject the rat to this experiment for the purposes of filming the scene. Um, And the fact that it was a real rat wasn't really publicized at the time. It came into light later. Um, And when it did, the scene was reportedly censored in some markets like the uh, UK at the behest of um, animal rights organizations. So that's just a. (laughs) a touch of the production stuff that happened during this movie. But anyway, I had to bring that up because we were talking about hippie and his amazing rat and then catfish. I love catfish and you know why I love catfish. Every time I watch this movie, the moment it comes on catfish for the first time I pause the movie and I look at whoever I'm with and I say, look at that Arkansas Razorback hat because this (laughs) whole movie, he's wearing an Arkansas Razorbacks hat. And at one point he even makes an Arkansas Razorbacks kind of, joke or reference he says happy as a hogs in a walla down there probably which is a hog reference so he it's understands right. razorbacks and i just love it it makes me happy i don't care i, I if you want to if i maybe i'm shallow but that enhances my movie movie viewing experience so
0: I, it's a good shallow to be in, in a in a movie about water this is the best kind <laughs> of shallow to be so, I was going to ask you what you, you know, if you had a favorite character in the movie. And I'm assuming, I'm assuming it's Catfish for that reason. A favorite side character. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, of the, of the crew. Uh, I like Jammer personally because I love this big kind of under the giant esque type guy. And one of, my, one of my favorite lines is when he, he wakes up and he said, <laughs> he's asked by Bud, you know, how you feeling? He says, I'm good. Although I, I thought I was dead when I saw the angel coming for me. <laughs> and then Bud goes, tell me about it later. Because so, so much has right. happened. You know, they've already seen the NTIs. They've got the Russian water tentacles. And, you know, like, we'll, we'll fill you in. You fill us in. But I love Jammer. He's just that yeah. big kind of tender, you know, this, like, gentle giant.
1: Yeah. Oh, yeah. He's a great character. All of them. They're they're unique. And, yeah. And, you know, they reminded me, I was going to mention this earlier, but now that we're talking about the crew it triggers it in my mind. This movie completely was ripped off by Armageddon. And I, I am an unapologetic lover of Armageddon it's one of my favorite movies ever. And I, and I stand by it. But when I was watching this, I was like, how did they get away with this? Like, you know, there's so much, there's an oil rig where civilians are being working on it and they're having to be taken over and used by the government to go do a big thing. There's a family relationship drama at the very center of it. Um, you know, just like Bruce Willis and his daughter slash dealing with uh, Ben Affleck's character. It's very similar here with the way that Bud and Lindsay's relationship plays out in this film. Um, like I said, they're both having to eventually, essentially stop world destruction. They fight over who's in charge, the military and the civilians. Um, the military in both films brings a bomb or a gun onto the premises without telling the civilians causing a big problem and an extended action sequence related to it. They both have issues diffusing bombs and or placing bombs to go off. It's fascinating to me like how similar these are. And the crew was another one because much like the crew in Armageddon with all these very unique, different, weird kind of personalities, you can see a lot of that in the same sense of these guys um, than the crew we have here. And I think they both fit perfectly in their individual movies. You can't replace either. You know, you couldn't swap them, but I just lo- I just was shocked honestly at how similar Armageddon felt to me after watching the abyss this time
0: around. It's a good formula. It's, it's one that, I mean, obviously it worked for Cameron and Chris Columbus and Michael Bay and company were like, Hey, let's, let's start with that because that was successful to a cult following of people, so let's try that and put some Aerosmith in there and see if we can get some people to see this movie. And let's make it some on asteroids instead of in the water. So space versus versus the water, you know, whatever. Well, at the heart of this movie, uh, I, or the centerpiece, is this relationship between uh, Bud and Lindsay. And this is probably one of the most interesting relationships I've seen on the screen between Ed Harris and Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio. Played the longest name in Hollywood, but I'm, I'm watching this, this movie play out. And, um, and again, this could be because the last time I saw this was when I was single. This is the first time I'm seeing it when I'm married, but their relationship seemed to be a spotlight at the center of this movie for me. Um, and their relationship actually it apparently has an effect on the movie's outcome. And so I'm going to ask you sort of a tongue in cheek question, but not really. Does the success of the human race depend on the success of their marriage? (laughs) Because in in some ways I feel like it does. I mean, I know that there's more to it, but at least on the surface, pun intended, I, I feel like that their relationship, their marriage and that success or failure is what we 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 see the aliens watching at least in part
1: i'm going to disagree and i i i think what you're i think your intent and what you're saying is correct and i think the words that you may have written down don't necessarily speak to that right so if we ask the question does the success depend on the success of their marriage i would say no Because the success of their marriage is yet to be determined. Sure. And they've already been successful for the human race. I think what we see is a parallel between the qualities that will allow Bud and Lindsay to have a successful marriage being the same qualities that the NTIs are impressed enough by to want to save the human race. Mm -hmm. So in a sense, like ultimately – Yes, their relationship being what it is definitely plays a role in the success of the human race. If they aren't able to get their crap together and work together, um, make the sacrifices that each of them has to make at the end of this film, then we never get the end of this movie. They are the two smartest people on the boat. They are the ones that have to come together to make this work. If they – maintain their divided, fractured relationship that they start this film at, then we don't ever get a chance to have the NTIs see Bud's character and see the love that he has inside of him, and then potentially get to the point where they might stop that wave from happening. So I agree with you, but I don't. Yeah. I, I think you probably know exactly what I'm saying.
0: I do. And I'm sort of setting you up because I do agree with exactly with what you're saying in that what I think Bud and Lindsay's relationship does is I think it sets an example of what real sacrifice and real determination in a relationship of any kind could look like. It's really interesting from a faith-based perspective, my relation, when I talk to people about my, my marriage, the ideal state for me is that my marriage would reflect everything about who I am to everyone else. Like, like, how I treat my wife and how I treat my marriage becomes extended out into my other relationships with with my friends, with my work relationships. And so the love that I have for my wife and the grace that I try to uh, extend to her and that she extends to me should be echoed in the other relationships that I have. They should be informed by that marital relationship and vice versa. And my faith informs that, but I, it's, it's weird to actually see a hint of that depicted on the big screen, because that's not something we see a lot of times in, in filmmaking when it comes to what, what marriage looks like the value of marriage, the value of having not a stable relationship, but having a relationship that's worth working through the ugliness and working through the mess and bud and Lindsay's relationship is paid off so well at the end by everything that we see from the very moment. Like we see a disheveled man who is so frustrated with this woman, um, who comes onto his rig (laughs) to take over and We find out early on that he's married to her. But over the course of the movie, we start seeing that, well, no, he hasn't necessarily given up on their relationship. And and that's a difficult thing to sell. Because if you start out with this conflict, if you start out with this relationship that's like butting heads, how are you going to get from that to what we get at the end of the film on an underwater oil rig? Using military conflict and NTIs and lots of – I mean, you, that's something that's not expected. I I did not see that coming when I saw The Abyss the first time. I was like, oh, I didn't see this relationship as being significant necessarily. I thought it would be played out for laughs or played out for, um, for good dr- drama. But never until recently did I pick up on the fact that this is vital. To the overall narrative,
1: it is, and it is of equal importance. Cameron, literally, to me, in my opinion, and I, and this gets on part of what you were saying there in that first question, he seems to give equal importance to the resolution, the what's the word I'm looking for, reconciliation of Bud and Lindsay's marriage, as he does the saving of the human race. I. I feel that and whether his intention is that or not, like that's what this movie tells me one relationship at a time. One, one group of humanity coming together and realizing they can sacrifice for each other and put each other first at a time. And that's what we see here. Um, And and I love it. I love seeing how it plays out. It's very emotional. It's very personal out of, I had four potential connecting points, Patrick, and four of them were Bud and Lindsay related. I mean, it, that's how impactful this whole relationship is as a through line for this film. And I love that he was still wearing his ring. This one was probably my number two CP right here. Uh, she calls him out for it. They're fighting, you know, in that bickering kind of fun, banterish way. And he says, divorce ain't final. I forgot to take it off. And then right after that, he gets angry at her, ends up running and throwing it in the toilet And then we see him run back and grab it out of there. Blue hand and all. I've been there. Like, I've felt that emotion before. (laughs) And I knew exactly what he was going through in that moment. And the way it's portrayed to us on screen is perfect. It is absolutely 100% accurate. He, He clearly still loves her. And he is not happy with the dissolution of their marriage, despite them having problems. Whereas she is coming at it from a different perspective. You know, she has moved on. And she's been in a major relationship and it didn't work out for whatever reason. But acknowledging that messiness, like you said, it, it may not, be, for real marriages that go through stuff like Bud and Lindsay, it may not be simple. You may be separated. One partner may be with someone else in the midst. Doesn't mean that there's not an ultimate coming back together that can happen. Um, these two people realize how much they mean each other. They realize that they need to make some changes in order to be... What the other person deserves. It's it's great. There's and and I liked seeing their progression throughout the film. There's a great moment with um, Bud and Lindsay later when he's asleep and he's snoring. Again, these are small character moments. Don't let anybody ever tell you that James Cameron doesn't do characters. I've heard that complaint by the way, and I, I, it makes me want to just throw something out the window. Like, oh, he's he's all bombastic. Oh, he does his visual effects. Get the heck out of here this moment tells you otherwise bud is snoring and sleeping Lindsay comes down they're all tired they're all worn out she sits down next to him she kind of leans over across her shoulder and she says virgil turn on your side which he immediately does hearing her in his sleep and he stops snoring so much is told by this scene every time we hear her use the name virgil is a big impactful moment and, and it comes into play at the end of the film in a big way as well but like when the name Virgil gets used you have to understand there is a different place those people are coming from whether it's himself or Lindsay using it and I love this this was like a a moment of like hey even though we've been apart for so long like we were married we intimately know each other and I'm playing my role as your wife because that's who I am like I can't get away from that that's who I am and him hearing her voice almost like without even having to hear it. It's like, it's it's a spiritual thing. I don't know. I loved it. Um, yeah. And then I think you mentioned him talking, her talking to him as he falls. Yeah. Uh, earlier and her talking about, you know, how he's, she's there in that cold darkness with him, that he's not really alone. And she tells him that story about the power going out in their apartment. (laughs) Another moment, like I was in tears and she's saying, you know, that candle is me. Like everyone is out there alone in the dark in this life. And what did you, you, you lit up another candle and said, no, that's me. And then I'm sure you remember the next part, which I mean, I'm sure I'm guessing they probably had sex. She says, but there are two candles in the dark. I'm with you. I'll always be with, there with you, bud. Um, I love that moment. And, and to the, to the credit of the entire cast of the crew as well, Catfish takes over the mic in that moment too. Right after that, she's losing her stuff, man. She is breaking down and Catfish takes over. I'm very calmly. He's, he asks Bud to respond. It's really sweet. Um, and I just kept thinking about like in those times of trial and in the greatest fear, we are willing to say those things that we hold ourselves back from saying and that we let ourselves get completely distracted from, from all this other crap that is happening and all these superfluous circumstances around us. And in that moment, the truth comes out. The love is show- you, you cannot deny what you care about and who you love and she lets it all out and it made me think about how much like I wish we wouldn't wait to, to let it all out too so yeah man I, I could go on all day like there's there's another great one at the very end the whole final scene you know when they're typing to each other I love how that plays out when he says going to stay and she has to accept it and understand it I he says love you wife oh uh, it's just their relationship is what makes this movie great for
0: me. I agree and I look at their relationship and that level of vulnerability that happens she even acknowledges she says of course I'm I'm saying this you know behind the she this is not her words this is just me paraphrasing but she's like of course I'm I'm doing this now when you're you know 2000 feet below me you know when uh, 2000 feet of water between us and but nevertheless there is vulnerability and I think oftentimes I've seen this played out on the big screen and small screen when two people are isolated when they are stuck someplace that oftentimes there's this like process that goes through of getting past the BS, getting angry at each other, and then eventually getting real with each other. And there's this intimate vulnerability that shows up at the end of that. And I think this I think that process takes place over the course of the film where Bud and Lindsay are butting heads and then they're playfully talking about, you know, how to get the rig working. Like there's this really small moment where she's, she's uh, like tight, trying to tighten a screw or something like that. She's got the socket wrench and she's trying to bypass something. She's telling him what she's going to do to try to get more power to the rig. And, and, And he's like, if anybody can do it, you can. She goes, yeah, we'll see. And he's just smiling at her because he's like, wow. He's remembering this is the woman I fell in love with. This is the smart, capable fighter, someone who knows how to get things done. And I think that moments like that just reveal to me that Bud loves her, not because of what she gives to him, but of what she does to elevate him as a man. Like she... I don't think she ever intentionally like emasculates him. I think she makes him feel like he's important. Like he is through the course of the movie. She, she elevates him to a place where he, honestly, I think one of the I have with the movie is that why didn't, why didn't monk go down to, (laughs) to disarm the bomb? Why did it have to be bud? And I think for the purposes of, the, the movie itself, it had to be Bud so we can get these great moments with him and Lindsay. But practically, I think it's because Monk needed to monitor the, the oxygen and everything, whatever. But the fact is, I think that – I don't think that Bud would have been able to go had everything that happened before with him and her in the different pockets of the movie had those not taken place.
1: Yeah, I agree. and And leaders go. I mean leaders go. That's what leaders do is leaders lead. And just, just like in the end of Armageddon, (laughs) I mean, you know, it's, that's his job. And just like it would have been coffee's job. And it is coffee's job. Coffee makes the call for his entire team. Like we're not going home guys. And there's a moment where they have to reconcile that. And they, and and it happens quick because they're professionals, they're Navy SEALs. So they've pretty much come to terms with that. And I, but I love that. Um, I agree. Yeah, it's, it's, it's such good character stuff.
0: It really is. So let's talk about the ending. This is actually the thing that changed, excuse me, that was added to the most in the director's cut and added a whole new, not subplot, but a whole new kind of angle of understanding why the aliens were there. And I got to be honest with you, Aaron, I don't, I didn't really like this the first time I saw the director's cut because I've been so used to the theatrical, but I wanted to ask you, how did the ending work for you specifically? Did you did you did it did it hit on all the points you wanted it to or, or was it heavy handed or was it just right?
1: Well, I recently saw a review from someone on Letterboxd.
0: Someone talked about
1: how they love this film except for how the final third is a complete crazy off the end of the deep end, um, very heavy handed quote anti war propaganda. And I got a couple things to say about that. And uh, let me. I guess I'll just answer your question first. Yes. The ending works for me just fine. I actually quite love the ending and have grown to quite love it. I don't think I understood it the first time I saw the film and like you. Uh, and so in future viewings, it, it meant a lot more to me. Here's the thing. I, it, this movie plays out like Aquaman <laughs> and obviously Aquaman is new, but, Bud is Aquaman and the aliens are ocean master. <laughs> and if you've, I mean, I guess, is this spoilers for Aquaman? I, I don't know. Not really. But like Ocean Master is concerned about climate change, the pollution of the ocean, war. What are That's exactly what the NTIs are concerned about. They even show us. They do the foreshadowing by, we see some of the interviews early on in the film um, talking about those things. And then we get to see what they have taken in as far as knowledge goes. And they use, I love it, when I love, 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 that moment where Bud says, where do you get off passing judgment on us? You can't be sure. How do you know? And then, boom, they start, like, playing the history channel. And I was like, oh, Gotti, you know, like, like, they know. And they're showing us, like, history has repeated itself. We have done this. But that's exactly the same thing that's happening in Ocean Master. And Bud is essentially serving as the bridge between the service world and the underwater world, much like Aquaman is serving as. So for me, we're basically podcasting on Aquaman back to back weeks, which I love. This is awesome. So yeah, I, I love the ending, man. Um, leading up to the ending, I got to talk about this real quick. First contact. Um, it, it made me want to ask you this question about whether or not, how would you react? Would you smash your regulator and try to run away? Or would you be mesmerized like Lindsay is and reach out to touch the unknown beautiful thing? Because my roommate and I had a great conversation. We were like, what the heck is she doing? Like, she could touch this thing, dude. It could like, her hand could frizzle up and, you know, maybe it's hot. Who knows? I know it's underwater, but it it could be. Uh, But later on, there's a moment where she's talking to Bud and describing the the NTI. And she says, I love this. She says, we all see what we want to see. Coffee looks and he sees Russians or Russian water tentacles he sees hate and fear. You have to look with better eyes than that. Put that on a t-shirt, put that on a motivational poster. You have to look with better eyes than that. That could be a connecting point as well. So I got a couple, I'll, I'll finish my thoughts on the ending. After you answer this question for me, I know I'm hijacking and going on a tangent, but I'm curious what you would do at first contact.
0: I would probably be like jammer and take off. I I think depending on how the NTI approached me, um, first of all, I'm looking at Lindsay on this ledge holding this heavy equipment even though she's submerged in water and you see this thing that just flies up and basically like knocks her back. I I don't know. I, that is, as pretty as that would be, anything flying by me like that that's pink and translucent would freak me out. I would run away. And I'm okay saying that because... Yeah. If I see something moving inside of it, that thing's probably going to shock me or it looks like a jellyfish. It's you know, it's it's underwater life is what it is. And underwater life is by its very nature bad. I say that very tongue in cheek, but that's kind of how we feel about about life underneath the surface of the water without any sunlight. It like it gets worse as you get deeper. And so if I see these things flying at me, I'm not going to stick my hand out. However, If this thing is gliding towards me, maybe it's trying to be friendly. Again, I don't know, but I just wouldn't take that risk.
1: I wouldn't either. I would run like a bat out of hell or swim like a stingray out of the trench or whatever. I I don't know what the great analogy would be here. But that would be me too. I'm not sticking around to find out if this is a manned or unmanned underwater vehicle with an alien in it. Um, I'm probably thinking it's the Russians too and i'm out um and what Lindsay does is crazy but it gives us that great quote of you have to look with better eyes than that listeners if you take anything away from this take that and apply it to your life all right so back to the answering your question patrick about the ending aliens decide us not to wipe or aliens decide not to wipe us out because to me budge showed them the good in humanity shows them that there is a person that is out there that is willing to sacrifice for others and I felt like it was a great lesson in integrity here, that our actions and our character always matter, even when we don't think someone else is looking. Because Bud is not making these choices with the intention of trying to save the world. Bud is making these choices because that's who he is, and that's what he needs to do. And the aliens just happen to be watching him. And I love that. Um, I, I really really love that. And I don't think it's anti-war propaganda either. Here's the thing. It's possible that James Cameron sat down and said, I want to make a movie that says, Hey world, you need to get your crap together. How can I do that? I'm going to go craft a story around this message. That to me is what anti-war propaganda is, but it has to happen in that way to be anti-war propaganda. That has to be the purpose of the thing. This is a movie. There are a million purposes of this movie and story. This just happens to be how the story naturally progresses in a realistic manner to play out and provide good drama. It almost feels like a biblical resetting of humanity is at play here as well for me. And the alien's position makes perfect sense because all they know is the outcomes of our actions. They don't know us on a personal level. All they see is they see us at our worst and not our best. And when they have these interactions with Virgil, who, by the way, meets the aliens by saying the greatest first contact line in the history of first contact lines, howdy, how you guys doing? I mean, how do you not immediately realize that's a good person? (laughs) And he shows them, he shows them and talks to them and says like, this is what we can be at our best. It's worth giving us a shot. And I love it. I love the ending. I think it's I think it's great for the film itself, but I think there's a lesson – there's there's lesson upon lesson for us as viewers that we can take out of this, which makes this a special movie.
0: I can see the argument for the tonal shift and the preachiness of the last 15 to 20 minutes because up to that point, nothing felt very – everything was subtle to me with the exception of the, the showdown with coffee. But everything felt very deliberately – placed and like bud when we see all these images flying by of the history channel as you said i'm saying okay enough 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 and it could be it could be it's a valid argument to say hey look we're we're promoting the fact that yeah this is definitely an anti-war message but the fact is i would believe that if we didn't have the relationship with bud and Lindsay, because i think And I, and I picked up a little bit on the, on the, I would call it the kind of the Noah's Ark type thing of the flooding of the earth at the same, but it, first of all, when God flooded the earth, it wasn't, it wasn't a threat. He did it. Okay. (laughs) But he also put faith in the hands of uh of an individual, his family and his family. And I think that that component is, is here as well. The dissipation of the wave, the sacrifice that Bud made by staying here a while, as he says in his message. I think that is a, an interesting parallel to the, the flood story. But the aliens weren't going to try to start over. They were just going to wipe out humanity because it was just terrible. But for me and my money, I think that because we have the relationship between Bud and Lindsay, we have this this marriage relationship, I think what the aliens are seeing is there's hope in humanity because of this relationship between these two people. And I, I couldn't help but think about green book when I watched this and that we see this two person relationship as an example of the goodness that could exist in a messy world that we live in and a world where there are differences and there are misunderstandings, which, man, that's what marriage is. It's it's, it's a life filled with the highest of highs and the lowest of lows and misunderstandings and miscommunication. But at the heart of it, two people that still love each other and they find common ground. And I think that's the message that the aliens get from, from Bud. And I think that's why they dissipate, not because they think that, oh, his marriage is going to work out or it's working itself out. So therefore we're not going to destroy the earth. I mean, or we're not going to you know, drop these tidal waves on different parts.
1: Yeah, I, I can see that. And I, and I, I think it's the, it's probably the language too that Virgil. <laughs> and I say that cause he said it Virgil Brigman, full name back on the air. I think it's the language of his final words as he's emerging back up. And I actually took the time to write it down. He says, have some new friends down here. Guess they've been here a while. They've left us alone, but it bothers them to see us hurting each other, getting out of hand. They sent a message. Hope you got it. They want us to grow up a bit and put away childish things. Of course, it's just a suggestion. If there was a moment where I felt like I understand someone feeling like it's heavy handed, that's that's it. Like, at this point, we have gone into full monologue exposition. I'm going to tell you what I want you to see and what I want you to pull out of this. Versus to evaluate it for yourself and just, you know, think on it. Um, and so th- there is a bit of that. It doesn't bother me because I saw it that way anyway. So it's more like a confirmation of what I was already in for. But I can see how others might view that in a different way.
0: Yeah. Um, before we get into our connecting points, a couple of the things that, we, that I wanted to hit was the, the technical aspect of it. We can't ignore that. Cinematography gets a nomination, so the special effects. And I think that personally, The Abyss, to me... Was, uh, was a nice little sandbox for Cameron to play in to help set up things like the T1000 in Terminator 2, which I think, like the Abyss, in my opinion, still stands up at the very least because of its technical, uh, achievements in special effects. Um, and purposefully, not just cool, not just the cool factor, but the fact that we have something that makes sense. Um, I like that, I love that, uh, that Hippie said, Maybe what we saw wasn't an NTI. Maybe it was their version of an ROV, you know, that the, the, the Russian water tentacle as it's so aptly named, which I think is fantastic. Um, I love that. I mean, that's, it wasn't a connecting point necessarily, but it was probably one of the more memorable scenes for me because I'd never seen that done before this. Wow. This thing that's it's water, but it's not, and it can transform and look like a snake and freak maybe seals out apparently. But um, this was such a great kind of pioneering movie to, uh, for Cameron and his special effects that he's become so well known for.
1: Yeah. Well, let's, let's talk about how that came to be. And some of these production notes, um, I, you know, I don't really know if I have these strung together in a great way, but, um, I, I have a bunch of notes that I've collected from various places on the internet and I wanted to go over some of these. For those that have not seen it, if you own the DVDs of this, there's a 60-minute documentary on the special edition, special features. Uh, it's called Diving Into the Abyss or something. I don't remember what it's called, but it's a, it's a special features about the making of this film. Watch it. It's incredible. It's really, really eye-opening, and a lot of the stuff we're going to say here is mentioned there. Um, a fellow Seattle critic actually wrote this, and I thought, I thought it was a great lead-in to As We Talk About This. His review of this on letterbox was one of the greatest technical accomplishments in the history of the medium it's easy to say they don't make them like this anymore but i can hardly believe they ever made them like this in the first place especially without casualties truer words have not been spoken so let's go through some of these so a couple of these um one time during underwater filming ed harris almost drowned Um, He was filming a scene where he had to hold his own breath at the bottom of their submerged set, and he ran out of air. He gave a signal for oxygen, and his safety diver got hung up on a cable and couldn't get to him. So another crew member had to come and give Harris a regulator, but it was upside down, and that caused him to suck in water. So a cameraman came over, ripped the upside-down regulator, and gave him one in the correct orientation. This caused a... Um, Harris later to break down and completely cry, um, that night and freak out. Understandably. So Ed almost died on set, um, right there. One thing with the production is that very few scenes involve stunt people. So for example, when Bud drags Lindsay back to the rig underwater, uh, you know, in the freezing, that that freezing moment when she's like drowned, that's really her holding her breath. (laughs) And when the rig is being flooded and the characters are running from the water, drowning behind those closed doors and dodging, exploding parts of the rig, those are all actors. They're not stunt people. There's no way that this would be allowed in Hollywood.
0: No, not at all. Not at all. Uh,
1: It's crazy. The the water in the two tanks. um, So most of the underwater filming took place in in a half completed nuclear reactor facility at the time in South Carolina. And this was the largest underwater set in the world. Seven million gallons um at one point they needed it to be dark uh and so they couldn't they couldn't get it dark so they had to like put this tarp up and put like millions of black beads to make it black out the sun completely so that it felt, felt like they were actually underwater um let's see the underwater or the water itself was um chlorinated heavily to prevent microbes from growing in it so m- many of the actors hair became green and white and they actually had to put vaseline in their hair and on their skin for protection because they would film for several hours at a time underwater um jim cameron's brother plays that dead crewman i don't know if you caught this but there's a dead navy sailor in the sunken submarine and he has like, crabs walking on him
0: coming out of his mouth
1: Yes, well, to accomplish this, Mike Cameron actually held his breath under fifteen feet of water while also allowing a real crab to crawl out of his mouth.
0: Gross. Gross. Again,
1: not a job I'm signing up for. Um, famously, Mary Elizabeth Master Antonio uh sc- stormed off set during the resuscitation scene. There were so many retakes of this scene with her lying there, getting you know her chest pounded on gently, um, laying there half naked and wet. Um, she eventually got so mad at the number of retakes, she she went off the set screaming, we're not animals, and she wouldn't come back until Cameron agreed to wrap it. Um, Michael Bean said he was in South Carolina for a full five months, but only acted for three or four total weeks. Uh, he says he remembered being one day underwater 10 meters deep, and suddenly the lights went out, and it was so black that he couldn't even see his hand, and he couldn't surface, and he realized at that moment, I might not get out of here. <laughs> like i mean these are like multiple characters or people sorry actors thinking that they were gonna die uh during this film it's it's really crazy man uh, there, there's a sequence with catfish where he fires that submachine gun into the uh, pool at lieutenant coffee they use live ammunition for that scene on this, in this seven million gallon tank and the underwater camera had to be locked down and unbanned Um, Because they had to take such extreme safety precautions. Thank God they did, at least for that. Yeah. Uh, But yeah, I mean, it is just... The production... It is an absolutely incredible thing that this ever got made. Unfortunately, so many relationships were ruined. Most of these actors have never worked with James Cameron again and have refused to, to talk about this making of this movie. They won't ever discuss it. And they will refuse to work with him further. So... Yeah, he's kind of an egotistical maniac, um, genius, in a lot of ways like Kubrick, I think you could say.
0: Yeah, he reminds me a lot of, in terms of the way in which he, his process works, he reminds me quite a bit of Steve Jobs and the way he alienated people for the sake of casting his vision. And, I mean, I don't know if Cameron has regrets about this production, I don't think he regrets the final product, but it brings into question this idea of how much is too much for high quality art. Because for for your money, my money, for both of us, we really enjoyed this. But what if Cameron had backed off? What if he had cut corners? What if he had taken out some of these things that didn't cause the the cast and some of the crew to be put at risk. What if he could, It. I mean, obviously the, the, the civilized person in me says, yes, you take those precautions because these are people. These are not animals as master Antonio said, but at the same time, sometimes you get those incredible works of art. You get those incredible products because you work your employees to death because you push your actors and actresses to the limb because you, Risk the safety and the lives of your folks for the sake of um, a performance. I mean, take Christian Bale for instance. How much has he done to his body in order to take on some of these roles that he has? I mean, who knows what's 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 happened to his inner workings because of how much weight he's gained and lost and the way in which he's he's done that? I'm not going to judge the man for for doing that, but actors make that choice to transform themselves and do certain things in order to get into the role, the late Heath Ledger. I mean, he got into the role of the Joker by, you know, by kind of getting immersed into the life of these, these, these guys that he was sort of imitating and using as part of that character. Did that have an effect on his, his personal life? Maybe it did. Maybe it didn't. I don't know, but, and I'm, and I'm not going to blame anybody. I'm not going to say that people shouldn't do that. Directors shouldn't do that. Because again, yes, your safety should be top priority. But when it comes to art, I mean, you make sacrifices. I mean, that's just the reality of, of where we are. And granted, I don't think we've ever gotten that extreme uh, in a movie. At least I haven't heard about that from, from a production. But at the same time, I don't know that we get the quality of film we got with The Abyss had that not taken place.
1: Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, man. Um, and at some point it's all up to those individuals to make those choices and whether or not you stay on a set to follow through with a commitment, if you feel it's unsafe, whether you decide to put yourself at risk and allow that can, to continue to happen, um, whether you take the risk and pushing your actors to do things that maybe other directors wouldn't push them to do. Like all of those things I think come down to personal choices yeah. and people, people need to, I mean, obviously this is, an era where we're very hypersensitive to to understanding intimidation and things of that nature so that comes into play um but yeah it's I, I don't think a movie like this a production like this is going to happen in 2019 and beyond
0: i agree i agree we'll leave it up to the special effects people to <laughs> to replicate that stuff although i'd love to see maybe an updated version of this i think it's about time for connecting points and uh like our one word takeaway i'm gonna go ahead and get us started and I think the one scene that we haven't talked about that is pretty obvious is the drowning and resuscitation sequence that takes place in um, uh, near the I guess the the back half of the movie. And, and maybe this is because this is the first time I've seen the movie since I've been married uh, almost 10 years. Or maybe it's because I have a podcast that I'm conscious of talking about these types of things. But this whole sequence stood out at the end of all be all section of where I connected most with the film. And it's in this sequence with the cab that we see that Bud and Lindsay are still connected, that they didn't get married just to get a stateroom on the rig they worked on for six months, as he said. But it's here that we see Lindsay's resourcefulness and trust, not only in herself, but also that Bud would follow through with what she was asking him to do. And there's this moment when she actually drowns and he yells through his suit that seals it for me. Um, it's such a heartbreaking thing because she's asking him to do this. She's asking him to essentially let her die. And then things really get amped up when we see this brutally honest reaction from Bud after he attempts to revive her. So they go through this whole sequence where they're, they're shocking her. They're giving her mouth to mouth. They're, um, they're doing all they can. And then eventually the camera pans back. And we see this top-down view of them covering her up. You know, she's blue and she's cold and uh, very much dead. And and there's just like probably like four or five beats. And then all of a sudden he yells, no, she wants to live. She wants to live. And he starts, you know, giving her, you know, the CPR again, almost just very aggressively. Um, he charges the the thing again and, and shocks her again. And then he finishes it up by saying, you've never backed away from anything in your life. Now fight, fight. And this, while he's saying this, he's slapping her. I have never seen someone slap a dead person uh, to try to get them to be revived. But it's completely in character for him. Like it's this anger and it's this fear and it's this passion that's all coming through. And then finally she starts coming back around and his reaction goes from that frustration and fear to love and hope. And it's one of the most honest portrayals of this messy relationship that we see, but one that shows how intimate this connection two people can have that really can't be shaken and how much he believes in her enough to say that she can come back, that she can fight, she can come back to this moment where she's alive and that he can be the one to help bring her back. And, you know, you know, like I said, without, without question, this is probably my most connective scene in the movie.
1: Well, it's definitely a very powerful one. Um, so much so that it's mine too. So I guess. Yay. That, yeah. That feels, um, apropos since we had the same one more takeaway. Why not have the same connecting point? Um, for me, it was close. Um, there, there are other ones and there's something about this scene that I, I struggle with. And I'm going to mention that too, but you're, you're absolutely right. I think just having a husband and wife have to decide who's going to get the last oxygen. Like that's such an intense decision to make people go through. I mean, it harkens back when I was saying to Armageddon, ripping it off and, and it coming down to, you know, Bruce Willis or Ben Affleck, that's a man and his protege or a man and his soon to potentially be son-in-law Completely different scenario than a husband and wife. This is, this is real. This is as tight as it gets. And it determines who lives and who dies, um, in essence at this point. And it's, it's like, how do you make this choice? When Lindsay decides that she should drown and almost die, um, but risk and give that trust that Bud would resuscitate her. I I lose my mind, man. Watching her drown and fight against it, knowing you know that's how it works. Like you, you may know that you're gonna drown, but your instincts are gonna do what she does. Start to second guess that as your water is closing over your mouth and only your nostrils remain. And and then it just seemingly he's screaming and it it's dragging her. He's dragging her like dead body through the water. I, I think watching that scene from both her perspective of going through it knowingly, willingly but so much fear and then him having to accept it—it it is the most painful scene in the movie by far and then what i love about it is how it's coupled with that resuscitation scene because you get that fear that she might not come back and it's awful and you get what you were talking about despite thinking she's dead bud refusing to accept it and he's like continuing on and on and on screaming at her and the whole slapping thing like Honestly, wouldn't we all, wouldn't we all just completely give everything we could potentially think of to do to bring her back? Like at that point, like it's, it's, you just, you're, you're dying inside watching this and you just want her to revive. I love the honor that the crew shows her. I think it might be Jammer. I can't remember. It might have been Catfish, but I think it's Jammer. As soon as they kind of declare her dead and Bud pulls away, someone takes her shirt and covers up her breast that was exposed, uh, when they had to rip her shirt open to get to the, the skin to use the paddles. I just, I love that little additional touch. The thing that I don't like about this scene or that I kind of struggle with is that trope of someone being dead, quote unquote dead and then suddenly coming to back to life at the last minute. I feel like it's very unrealistic and it, Even Cameron pushes it to its dramatic limit in this moment, but it just speaks ultimately to how invested in these characters I am that I was able to overcome it. And I am more emotional than I am frustrated because I, like Bud at that point, just want Lindsay to come back and I don't care how you give it to me, just let it happen And then the last part of this is I love how Lindsay drowning is juxtaposed later with Bud submitting to drowning as well by taking on the task of breathing the liquid oxygen. He says it's a great little line of dialogue when he first has sucked it into his lungs and everybody's looking at him crazy and he he types out feels weird you should try this and she just says I already have with (laughs) a grin. Yeah. And I, I think it's the perfect wrap up and levity and hopefulness and sweetness and all that for this incredibly intense, perfect, um obviously perfect, because we both picked it, connecting point. So, right.
0: It's great, stuff. man. It's it's great. um Something else I just want to exclamation point that is I love the fact that they're not the only ones there, that it's the whole crew of, of those guys, the main cast of people that while they're the their centerpiece, you have these great accent pieces of characters around them during that resuscitation scene. And then again, during the moment where Bud's about ready to, to drop into the abyss. And it just, it says a lot about that whole family's relationship.
1: Absolutely does. Well, to, I guess time to end this, it's been great. Um, this is a phenomenal first week into James Cameron month. We have not had a dud yet. All of, all of our previous, uh, director months have been amazing and I don't see this one being any different. So, um, I think it was a great choice. I'd seen someone mention somewhere online recently how it's, it's funny that people like to talk bad about James Cameron a lot, uh, for about 10 years at a time. And then a new movie comes out and obviously every single time it blows everybody away over and over again. And then people love him and then they start talking bad about him for 10 years. Well, I think that knowing, going through this is, is really at the perfect time for us and rewatching the abyss for me is creating even more excitement over alita um, battle angel which is cameron's new film that is coming in early february it's one that i have not had a lot of interest in despite it being based on an anime it's just got it's it's i don't know i'm i've been nervous about it and sort of like i don't know i don't know but obviously i need to see it because it's cameron I, i tell you patrick after watching this i just trust him i trust him and i know that I'm gonna get something I'm gonna enjoy.
0: And it, do you do you trust him like you trust Christopher Nolan though? That's what I want to know. No. Okay. Not yet. Not yet.
1: Not not <laughs> at that level.
0: You're still earning that trust.
1: <laughs> I mean, there is not a dud for me in James Cameron's filmography. Um all, but there's they're not consistently all at the the level of Nolan's films for me either. So um uh, nope, he's not quite there. But I don't I don't think that there's a dud in him, so all right. On that level, yeah, I'm excited. Yeah, me and too. Can't wait.
0: Excellent. Well, be sure to tune in next week for week two of our Director Month, where we'll be covering True Lies. A very fun, exciting action adventure with Schwarzenegger, and uh, really excited about that one. So we're excited to talk about it. Hopefully, you'll be excited to listen.
1: Hey everyone, thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you.